Uh, we're in chapter or Matthew chapter 18 this morning. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, we're working our way through this series, summer series, and uh, just spending some time looking at the different parables that Jesus taught on. We've titled this Living Parables as he used human examples to bring about a spiritual emphasis or to point to spiritual things. And so we're looking in uh, Matthew chapter 18, and as uh, each week I have the responsibility of identifying a different parable, and I keep trying to find some light, palatable teaching by Jesus, and I'm still uh, having trouble finding any of that. Uh, if you can help with that, I'd appreciate it. But this one instead is a little bit more intense as usual, as we find out most of Jesus' stories are. Kind of starts with the interaction between Jesus and Peter. And Peter, out of all the disciples, I would say is probably my for sure favorite. Really enjoy Peter because he's known for being larger than life and also being really good at sticking his foot in his mouth. And so he's somebody that we can mostly all relate with. And so this is an interaction with him and Jesus. And he's really good on the positive side of what Peter offers. He's actually really good at asking good questions. I don't know if you have that person in your life that you spend time with. Adrian and I were out to dinner with a few couples this last week and actually on a boat on West Lake and kind of cruising around. It was a lot of fun. And one of the guys that we were with, in the first 10 minutes, he had asked like 50 good questions, like right out of the gate. I was like, man, there's something valuable. I really appreciate that when someone thinks through well-asked questions. I believe it's one of the tools that we have to engage with the world around us as we move towards spiritual conversations. Well, back to this story. It's an interaction with Peter and Jesus, as I mentioned. And he asks a really good question. He's about to ask one that maybe we've all asked ourselves is, does forgiveness have a limit? Does forgiveness have a limit? Is there a point where I can actually stop forgiving somebody? Is there so many offenses that somebody can commit and then you're like, all right, I'm done, I'm finished. We're about to see that interaction and just a little warning in advance. This tends to be a little convicting. So let me pray first uh, before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us through your word. So thankful for your patience with us as we try to figure out these things like forgiveness. We ask now that you would instruct us that we wouldn't just add this to a mile-high pile of messages we've heard, but it would be actually something that transforms us and shapes us to be more like you. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so chapter 18, starting in verse 21, as I mentioned, it starts with Peter's question. He says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Stop there just for a moment. It's a little interaction. And you think about Peter spending a lot of time with, time with Jesus. He had to think through, okay, how am I going to approach or frame this question? First, I give him props because he doesn't say, hey, I have a, a question that my friend has. Like he at least owns it. He says, uh, for somebody, a brother that sinned against me, how many times do I forgive him? And he'll think about his uh, proposed suggested response. He says, do I forgive him seven times? Now, upon first read, you might not think that that was a big deal, but uh, in that day and age, that was a proposal that was basically more than double what was the expected amount for believers. 
The religious leaders took a passage found in the book of Amos that talked about, that, that talked about God forgiving the nation of Israel three times, and they made that the precedent for religious people to live out. Kind of a three-strike rule. Wouldn't you guys like that idea? Three times and you're out. But here, Peter's trying to sound like super spiritual, hoping to get a, a star sticker. And he says, what is it, seven times? Oh, look what a great student I am. Seven times, and I love Jesus. He blows us out of the water. Maybe your translation says seven times 70, or maybe it just says 77. There's some debate on either one. The idea is this, is that he's basically obliterating the ceiling of how many times we forgive. In other words, I heard it put this way from a a pastor this past week, less math, more love. Less math, more love. This idea that we're not supposed to be keeping a list. It's not like when you get to 446 times, you're like, oh, we're getting close. I'm going to be so done with that person on the other side of this. He's not bringing a number that we get to, but instead saying, you know what? There's not a ceiling. There's not a ceiling for forgiveness. Because what? Because love holds no record of wrongs. Love holds no record of wrongs. And so it's impossible to out-love somebody with this. There's not a number that you get to. I always know that we're in big trouble when I'm meeting with a couple and they sit down and one of them has prepared a list of offenses that they want to bring up about the other person, whether it's a physical list, which I have seen, or whether it's a mental list. It's kind of interesting how people have a real foggy mirror, but a 4K view of the offenses of the other person. They're like, ah, I don't remember that when I did that, but man, I've got this list. You're like, oh man, we're in trouble here when it's list keeping. And that's the same point that Jesus is making. There's no number that you get to. Instead, he points to the heart of the issue that it has to start by looking in the mirror ourselves. Take a look at the parable that he begins telling. It says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Stop there for some debrief. Basically, here's the idea. He's causing them to look a little bit closer at themselves in this story. This is the idea. Let's pause and and look at who we are in that story. Based on that, who do you think the servant represents? Me, you, us. That's that's the picture. That's the, the, the one that's offended. He's saying, slow down enough to look in the mirror a couple years ago, my wife bought this from, came home with this from Costco. I don't know if you guys have one of these at home. One of these mirrors that, uh, that first was kind of cool because it's like, oh, it's got a light. You can actually see a little bit in, in the mirror, see yourself. But then what's the worst part? When you flip it over, the amplification side, it's lit and it allows you to amplify and see what's going on on your face. Anybody else disturbed when you look in one of these? 
And like, I, I really think like no person should ever see themselves at this degree. And you start looking, you're like, when did that hair start growing? You know, like all these things. You're like, what in the world is happening there? Sunspots, filled pores, like all the gross stuff behind the scenes. You're like, glad I came to church. But here, here's, the, here's the, the picture, though, is he's saying, in order for us to understand forgiveness... We have to first, even as we sung about this morning, we have to understand what we've been forgiven, what we've been released of, the debt that we owed, that he released us from. If we we don't grasp that, any idea of forgiving somebody else, forget about it. It doesn't work. So he starts in the story having us look at ourselves before looking at anyone else. And what does he tell us? He says that we had a debt that was owed that was unbelievable. I don't know if you're nerdy like me, but I, when I see this, I'm like, well, what does is, what is, uh, 10,000 talents translate to? What kind of debt are we talking about here? I was researching that a little bit. A little bit of research told me that basically an average worker then would earn in one day one denarius. One denarius was the coin of the day for one day's labor. And guess how many denarius it took to equate to one talent? 6,000 denarius. So 6,000 days of work in order to pay for one talent. Now, what does it say? How many talents does it say that he owed? 10,000 talents. Now, if there's any math people in here, what is 10,000 times 6,000? Anybody? 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 60 million. Somebody's got their calculator out. I see that. I see that. He's, he's crunching it. 60 million days of work. You think your school loans are high. Like this is, like this is a major, this is an insurmountable. In fact, the term for, for uh, 10,000, they use the word Marius, which is where you get the word myriad, or basically a number in that day and age was the largest number that, number that they could present. So basically he's saying a countless debt was owed a countless debt for us to understand ourselves in the offense of our sin before a perfect God. It was a countless debt and there's nothing we could do about it. You see, the servant starts to realize, he starts to realize, wait a second, I'm in a, I'm in a jam here. This is not a little deal. Uh, my, my future's on the line. My family's future's on the line. This is, a, this is a huge deal. And so what does he choose to do instead of being sold to pay a portion of it? He pleads with the master, please. And do you guys notice what his request is? Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Wait a second. As the master, you're thinking to yourself, okay, 60 million days equals 165,000 years. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that you're not going to pay back that debt. You're not going to pay that back. But do you notice that the master doesn't lecture him on his foolishness? Think about mankind. How many people have this delusion of somehow regaining favor with God because of human effort. This is how God sees it. He's like, you're not going to pay that back. There's nothing you can do no matter how many days you have. And instead of confronting his foolishness, it says that he had mercy or pity on him and released and forgave him of all of it. I'm setting you for you. You don't have any debt. You can go away from here completely forgiven. You don't have to work another day, another moment in order to pay back that debt. That's our story if we've embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
When we embrace him, there's a reason we come together on a Sunday morning in a church and start singing about things. There's not many things we sing about, but this is one of those things worthy of singing about. Wow, the debt that was forgiven us. That has to take root to understand the glory. I love this verse in Proverbs 19.11. It is his glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory to overlook an offense. He looks past that and sees us, as Scripture describes, as white as snow because of what Jesus did. That's the foundation for forgiveness. Start with the mirror. Start to realize what you've been forgiven so that you can do the same. We'll see how the servant does with that. Verse 28. But when the same servant went out, who's the servant represent? Us. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The second section of the story seems a bit inconceivable until you realize, oh, wait a second, he's talking about me. He's talking about us. He's talking about our propensity to do the exact same thing, to, be, to completely bask in his forgiveness, but then hold it or withhold it from others. How backwards is that? You would assume here in this story, if somebody owed him, he would have been like, oh, are you kidding me? You're set free for sure. No debt here. But instead, what does human nature do? Human nature, when we operate in the flesh, we think, wait a second, I've elevated myself to God-like status. And I, an offense is inexcusable. And we choose to say, you know what? I'm not releasing you. I'm holding you to this debt. Find it interesting that he said that he, that he found his fellow servant. In other words, he sought him out. To remind your fellow servant, most likely here he's referring to one believer with another believer, challenging him on that. And look at the amount of debt. It says that it was 100 denarii. What did we already say that a, a day's labor was what? One denarii. So it was 100 days of work that was owed. Still a, a, sub, a substantial debt, right? Like a, a third of a year almost of, of debt that it would take to, to pay that back. But regardless, it was still a significant amount, but it's not unforgivable. It was doable. It was realistic. Find it fascinating that despite his plea that didn't evoke any kind of pity, says that he threw him in prison. Doing a little research on that this week, and they had in that day and age, they had what was called a debtor's prison. So they didn't, it didn't go to a normal prison. It went into a, a type of prison, kind of a holding place. And what the debtor's prison did is it put all the weight on friends and family to be able to help release that person by paying the debt. So in other words, you sat in that prison until you got enough buddies that had empathy or family that's like, all right, I'm going I'm to pay this amount to get them set free. All the other servants noticed this. And what does it say? It says that they, they saw that and they're like greatly distressed. How could they do this? How could they be so inconsistent with what should have been? They're operating in the flesh. For us, 
when the world around watches us as somebody that claims to be forgiven, and yet we're so lousy at forgiveness, the world's like, wait a second, how broken is that? It's important for us to understand this. We go back to that naturally in the flesh if we're not careful. Here's the purpose of studying God's word. I think we've mentioned this before. One of the things that studying God's word does is it actually educates your conscience. God's given every single one of us a a conscience that gives those nudges. You know, those voices that say, do this or don't do that, or you should do more of that or do less of that, that, that kind of voice. When we study God's word, it actually educates the conscience so that when we start doing it, something again that it's spoken against, the intention is that your conscience is supposed to be like, hey, you're doing that again. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. That's the idea here is as we start to see this, we're exposed to that. Oh, wait a second. I'm going back to operating in the flesh. I need to move away from that. Otherwise, things don't go very well. Look how the story plays out. Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, it's important to read that, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Whoo, just got kind of uh, intense in here, didn't it? Like kind of well, when, you're, when you're reading that, what does it say? How does he, what word does he use to describe that servant? Wicked. He calls it what it is. He doesn't say you ungrateful servant. He says you wicked servant. That's one of the things about our God is he doesn't sugarcoat things. And as much as I want to kind of move past this little section and kind of sugarcoat it nicely, I think it's important for us to wrestle through what does that mean when God literally, when our anger or our unforgiveness provokes anger, when it provokes a response from our God. For us, when he's talking about, he's talking about his servants. So he's talking about followers of Jesus Christ. It kind of shoots in the eye of this hyper grace movement that we do have a God that responds to our inconsistencies in our life. We do have a God that responds to that. It's reading a, a title of a, a section of um, an author had written on the same section is titled this. It's the same one that's in this section here. Only a fool wouldn't forgive. Only a fool won't forgive. The reason why is because why would you want to be the object of God's anger and wrath in your life? Why would you want to be on the receiving end of that? Are you kidding me? Like, why, why would you choose to live out? What does he say that he does with this servant? Throws him into jail. Throws him into prison. You're like, oh man, what, what do I do with that text? How do I, how do I respond to that? Here's an important thing to understand that once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation, but you can be under the consequences of our choices still as a believer. One of the primary tools that God uses to discipline his children, scripture says he disciplines those he loves. One of the primary tools he uses is to turn us over to the outcomes of the things that he warns us about. That's the whole idea of of sin. He's like, ah, kids, don't do that. That's not going to go well for you. That's not going to go well. And so the jailer, think about that expression, how perfectly that describes somebody that deals with unforgiveness. They're in the prison of their unforgiveness. 
They're in the prison of their unforgiveness. And what comes in that prison? Stress, anxiety. Think about all the things, a, a, a lack of joy, resentment, the, it, it, the, the list goes on and on. You could probably add to that. You've crossed paths with somebody that's consumed with bitterness and it doesn't go well for them. Think about it. It even in that prison often ripples into their health, right? How often you see the effect of, uh, of unforgiveness, even in a person's physical state. My wife's uh, brother, uh, owns a natural health clinic in Canada, and Canada is way more into kind of preventative health than the United States is all into, hey, how do we treat symptoms? But up there, they're trying to get ahead of the game. One of the things that he shared with us that was interesting is every patient that he meets with, the first thing when they're diagnosing their issues, the first thing he asks them is this. He says, is there any unforgiveness in your life that we should talk through? Isn't that interesting? Is there any unforgiveness in your life that we should talk through? It's like, whoa, like, can you imagine the next time you're at Kaiser and they're like, any unforgiveness? Are you kidding me? But, the, but in, the, in, this, in this situation, he's recognizing, hey, wait a second, all of this is part of life in that prison. And how in the world do you get out? He says you have to pay all his debt. When you hear that, it sounds a little bit all-consuming. All but the next verse says this, what is the payment of the debt? Forgive your brother from your heart. So you're in this miserable prison, and what does he say is the way to get out of that prison? Choose forgiveness. Choose forgiveness. He's like, he's like, you've got the way out. Choosing to forgive is the one way out of that prison. I'm a, a little bit weird with small spaces. Anybody dislike being in small spaces? Anybody ever pull themselves out of an MRI machine and say, I'm out, that's it, I, I have. Uh, well, a, anyway, I, th this idea of being in a tight, confined thing is kind of, I, I don't really like it. I'm kind of a bigger guy. I don't like the idea of, of tight spaces. I was watching a, a movie a number of years back. It was called Buried with Ryan Reynolds. I don't know if anyone's seen that before. He's stuck in this, this coffin. I'm like, oh, that's the worst thing possible. But I pictured to myself, if you're in that tight space and it's locked and you had the key to get out, how quick would you get out of it? How quick would you be like, okay, I'm turning this. I'm, I'm setting myself free by choosing forgiveness. And that's the funny thing is you're in this prison, but you've been handed the key. Isn't that kind of a strange concept? A prisoner, how long does somebody stay in a prison when they have a key? Like, not very long. They are very strategic. They're like, I'm taking the key and getting out. That's the way it works with God's discipline in our own life. He's saying, you're in prison, but you have the ability to get out. Let's scramble to do that. I want to spend the last uh, few moments of the service just talking a little bit of the practicality of forgiveness in the believer's life. Because I was thinking about that this week when I was reading this. I'm like, oh, that, that sermon, that sounds nice when you're talking about forgiveness. But what does that actually look like? Compiled a couple of little uh, suggestions or lists that I've accumulated from different pastors that have blessed me, different things I've read. I wanted to share a couple of those. Maybe you can jot some of these down. Maybe one of these might speak to you specifically. The first one is dealing with rationalizations for unforgiveness. Maybe as you read this list, one of these might apply. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've said it. The first one is this. Why won't you forgive? It's just too big. It's just too big. You don't understand what they've done to me. Now think about this for a moment. When dealing with a tumor in someone's life, do you ever see that person say, you know what, it's just too huge, leave it. 
No, the bigger the tumor is, the more the commitment is, I've got to get this thing out. I'll share a, a story with you that I'm kind of hesitant to, but I'm going to because it's the third service and I've done it in the first two. We have a, a, a rabbit at home. It's a lop-eared bunny. I've talked about it before. Uh, it's, his name's Buns, a uh, real profound name. Uh, this rabbit started developing in the last month an abscess like tumor thing under its jaw. Really gross. Started reading up on it. It's like, oh, is this something that's going to go away? And they're like, uh, yeah, those don't, those don't go away. And basically it was explaining to me, because the internet never lies, explaining <laughs> that if you leave it alone, it's going to die from the infection. Then I started looking into, well, what if I take it to a, to a vet? And then uh, they are saying, well, a lot of times they don't wake up from the anesthesia. And so you're like, oh, man, what do you, what do, you do here? And it's a $30 rabbit. And so what do you, what do, you, what do, you do here? And so I started searching on YouTube, what if you perform surgery yourself? <laughs> so my sister was in town. She's a nurse. I said, hey, sister, do you want to help me out with something? And so we sat down and we explained to my daughter, Sienna, who really loves this rabbit, said, listen, this rabbit, if we leave it alone, we have a couple options. We can leave it alone. Eventually, that infection is going to cause it to, it's going to die. It's going to die. Explaining that to my daughter wasn't fun. Explain to or we can be more proactive in this, and daddy can perform surgery on the rabbit. You decide what you want to do. <laughs> what do you think? My daughter's crazy like I am. She's like, go ahead and do it. Do what you got to do. So you're like, where is this going? And so anyway, I'm going to give you the b most calm version of this possible. So the rabbit was perfectly calm, allowed to perform the little incision, got all of the infection out. The only word I'll say to you is the word mayonnaise. It was a very difficult thing, uh, performing this surgery, very disgusting. And on the other side of it, guess what? Buns is hopping around doing great. Buns survived, is living to tell about it, see something worth cheering about. Buns made it, and I add that to my resume as bunny surgeon. Here's the, here's, here's the thing. So the reason I tell that, kind of because it's a fun story, too, uh, because I think about that as I was reading this section and how so many of us deal with unforgiveness. A lot of times people think, oh, guess what? Uh, I, I can't forgive because I can't forget. They use terms like that. That rabbit's not going to forget this huge growth that's under its chin. Time will heal it. Guess what? It's not healing it. It's not going to get better. How many times have you met somebody that you're like, you know what? You've done a good job of managing that hatred. You've turned out all right. You're doing really well. Or is it more been the opposite? Wait a second. That's eaten you from the inside out. It's turned you into an old, bitter, mean person. You got to let it go. This rationalization. They'll, they'll just do it again. Yeah, probably doesn't mean that you can't have appropriate boundaries in place. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But the idea of what's our responsibility is our part of forgiveness, rationalization. A couple things that forgiveness is not. I want to point these on the screen. The first one is this. Forgiveness is not forgetting. A lot of times people think like, well, uh, do I have to forget? Hey, guess what? You're not going to forget. The difference is, though, forget, forgiveness isn't forgetting, but forgiveness is redirecting, redirecting the focus of your mind. Say, I'm not forgetting it, but I'm not going to choose to dwell on it. I'm going to release that. I'm not going to 
Give, give mental energy towards that. It's not forgetting. It's saying I'm redirecting the focus of my mental thought. I'm releasing that person from that. It's not removing the consequences. Think of the story of ba- David and Bathsheba. Things went really bad on the other side of forgiveness. So often there's still consequence to someone's choice. You don't have to remove all the consequence, but you do remove you focusing on it. Trusting again immediately. This is another one that I think there's some confusion on. You're like, wait a second. Somebody will say, uh, you, you said you forgive me. Why don't you trust me? You're like, ah, forgiveness and trust are two very different things. You can forgive somebody, and then guess what takes a long time to rebuild? Trust, right? Trust is something that doesn't happen overnight. It's something that, that builds and develops. And for you to forgive somebody doesn't mean that you trust immediately. You put boundaries in place for forgiveness. Those are a couple good reminders. A couple more things of what forgiveness is. So we've said rationalizations, things that's not. Forgiveness is releasing my revenge. I'm not the one that's going to make this right. I'm not the one that's going to get even. I'm going to turn it over to another judge. In some cases, it's a human judge. There's some things that you're like, hey, sometimes the judge has to make a determination on this. I'm turning it over, but it's not going to be me that makes that decision. Sometimes it's turning things over to the ultimate judge. And guess what? They didn't get away with it. He sees everything. He deals with everything. And and if his ultimate judgment in someone's life isn't enough for you, you've got issues. His ultimate judgment for someone's the consequence of rejecting him, it, it, it doesn't go well for that person. Turn it over to him. Next one there, refusing to be consumed by the past. In the words of Disney, let it go right? Let it go. Say, I'm not going to allow that to be what defines me. I'm not going to allow that to be what controls me. Think about so much time we give that we imprison our mind. And guess what? The person that you're angry with has moved on with life. They couldn't care less if you're angry with them. And yet they still have free rent between these two ears, right? They still have free rent. They consume your mind. They consume your thoughts. And you keep drinking poison trying to kill them. You're like, wait wait a second. That doesn't work like that for us to release and say, you know what? I'm not going to let that define me. I'm going to move on. And the nice thing when you finally release that, you're like, all right, I'm going to turn it over to the, to the true judge in all of this. And I'm, gonna, I'm responsible for me. How good is that to put your head on the pillow at the end of the day? Say, it's not me. I've turned it over. I'm done with it. Last one, which sounds very churchy, but is very relevant, yielding to the Holy Spirit. You're like, what do you mean, Pastor Scott? What's that mean, yield to the Holy Spirit? This is stuff, as I already mentioned, is not natural in the flesh. In the flesh, we hold grudges. We hold on to things because we're the king. In the Spirit, when we've turned things over, all of a sudden you're capable of doing things that you would be amazed of what you're able to do. When you start going to the Holy Spirit, when you start saying, dear Lord, please take this from me, shape my heart, change me, transform me from the inside out. Do you not think he's going to rush upon that request? 
Do you not think he's going to rush upon that request? Why wouldn't he? If the whole idea of the Christian life after you've become a follower of Jesus Christ is to shape you to become more like Jesus Christ, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, do you not think that this image of forgiveness is one that he's going to want to get straight in your life? It's the perfect representation of who Jesus Christ is. Forgiveness grace. So for you to get in line and say, I want to, I want to align with what you're wanting to do with me, man, that's a great starting point for us to acknowledge our weakness in it. God, I can't do this on my own. I'm terrible. I can't stand that person. They're very difficult. And I, they've done so much and you know that God, I need your help to change me from the inside out. And I'm confident he'll answer that request. I'm confident he'll answer that request. I'll just, as we wrap up, just thinking through this question that I have for you, question that maybe you can wrestle with the rest of the day, rest of the week, whatever it takes, is who do you need to let off the hook? Who do you need to let off the hook? Who have you been holding on to for so long? You've been basking in the grace that Jesus provides, but unwilling to extend it to that person. Who do you need to let off the hook? Sometimes it takes some real reflecting. Some, some people are like, eh, I'm okay on forgiveness. Then you start replaying different seasons of your life. How about in this era? How about in this area? During this period of time, who are you holding on to? When you see that person at Starbucks, does it come flooding back to you? What, what, who do you need to let off the hook? I'm confident that exercise will do us all a lot of good. It'll do us all a lot of good. So much easier to just to turn the radio up and keep on cruising in life, but instead to slow down, lift the hood and say, what's going on? Who do I need to let off the hook? Then secondly, letting off the hook. And the very last thing as we wrap up, second thing, not just who do you need to let off the hook, who do you need to go to and say, you know what? I blew it. I did this. I did this. I was an idiot. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. That will make it so much easier for that person to forgive you, right? So much easier when they have an apology, when they have ownership for your fault or your part of it. I believe all of this is possible to transform us and transform our church. I believe it could be an amazing day if we got this forgiveness thing straight. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord, I thank you that you're not calling us to something that you don't do yourself. You've extended forgiveness to each one of us. Now, whether or not someone here have chosen to accept that invitation or not is really up to them. But either way, that extension is there of your grace, of your forgiveness. For the majority of us in this room that have embraced that, God, we need your help to pass it on to others. It doesn't come natural. It's hard. It's difficult. The debt seems great in our minds. Uh, but that's what you charge us to, to represent, to reflect you in the world around us. Not to bask in it, but to extend it to others. God, we submit that to you. We acknowledge we need your strength to do it. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. His forgiveness is what should compel us to forgive others. Amen. Let's try to live that out this week. Really give this some thought. Who is it, God, that you need me to release from my unforgiveness? Who do you want me to set free this week? God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the Sunday. If you need prayer, we have volunteers here following.